Hear the word of God from Psalm 27. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Psalm 27 of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of who will I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord to inquire at his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Don't forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen up against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing in our series through the book of Psalms. The way we're doing this is by looking at specific themes and types of Psalms that are in the whole book. Last week we looked at Psalm 23 and saw an example of a confident Psalm. A Psalm that expresses the confidence we have in all circumstances because we have a shepherd and a host. Today we're in another confident psalm that also has another recurring theme of establishing our destiny as glory. I intentionally matched up our two kind of confident psalms with, the, with this time of year where we do our pledged giving. This was not an accident, this was intentional. We matched up our pledged giving with our confident psalms. And I felt it was my duty as your pastor to teach you this important lesson. You see, money and giving is a topic that often pastors shy away from or press way too hard in. You guys know what I'm talking about? Am I right here? You've heard or seen those pastors who are telling you that uh, you need to give X amount of money, and then when you do, you'll get it back in double. And they love talking about giving money. Or you might have been somewhere where it felt like a constant guilt trip for you to give. My experience is actually different. 
I've mostly grown up in churches where uh, we've been to places where the pastors, they just don't like talking about money. They don't, talk, they don't like talking about giving. They're afraid to go there because of what people might think. Money is private. Or, see, I knew they only wanted me here for my funds and my salary. My people, I just want to be open and share this with you. I think this topic of money, giving, and confidence is so important to the shaping of your character. God has given us this great gift of sacrificial giving as a means of significance, as a tool of character development, and as a means of overcoming anxiety. Let me explain. For most of us, money symbolizes comfort and security. Coming from someone, guys, whose parents had nothing growing up, we had so little growing up, having a certain amount in my bank account and my retirement says that I don't have to go back to where my parents were. That's what that means to me. There's a security there that I have a certain amount in my bank account that says I no longer will ever have to go back to the days where my parents were working five jobs, struggling just to make it through. In our society, money is our comfort, our desire, and our security. We think the more we have, the more secure we will be, the more confident we will be, the happier we will be. It's not true. In a USA Today poll from a few years back, it discovered to be happy everyone needs to make more than double what they make now. In other words, it meant like no matter how much you made in this poll, it said no matter how much money you made, for you to be happy, you always had to make more than double what you made. In other words, if you made 35,000 a year, it said for you to be happy, you had to make 70. If you made 100,000 a year, you said to be happy, you needed 225. And if you made 250, they said for you to be happy, you need to make 500. And that's what they discovered in this poll, was that for you to be happy, that's according to this poll, was that you need to make more than double what you currently have. In other words, there is no end to that. You can go on forever. Because money does not make you happy. What we, see, what we see and said that money doesn't lead to security, and we are more anxious than ever as a society. Right, money might not lead to happiness, but it could lead to security, right? That's not true either. In a 2017 New York Times article entitled America's New Anxiety Disorder, the writer expresses the consensus attitude in America is anxiety. This is what the writer says. Few Americans at the moment would assess our national emotional state as anything better than not great. We're not in the midst of a real disaster. No civil war, no Great Depression, not even the grim bit of the 1970s that featured near constant bombings and hijackings. There's no presidential resignation, no two different women trying to kill Jared Ford in a single month. But when the pre new president referred to this country as a scene of carnage in his inaugural address, the objections were relatively muted. There's a bleakness in the atmosphere and a consensus on what to call it, anxiety. For the past decade or so, American anxiety was usually described as either a mental health issue or a generational style. Psychologically, we are steadily becoming more apprehensive than ever, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. Generationally, the whole society, the social attitude of younger adults changed. If some in the 90s cultivated an air of depressive slouching, their modern counterparts developed an ethos of relentless worry and agitation. As of 2012, New York Magazine article put it, Panic strivers have replaced sullen slackers as the caricatures of the moment. And Xanax has eclipsed Prozac as the emblem of the national mood. I'll say that one more time. New York Magazine article from 2012 says, Panic strivers have replaced sullen slackers as the caricatures of the moment. And Xanax has eclipsed Prozac as the emblem of the national mood. In 2016, 
um, British writer Matt Haig recently tweeted, it is difficult to tell where your anxiety disorder ends and where actual news begins. We're living in a world and in an age of anxiety, and this is what is the answer to this. Now, this is not necessarily referring to, and I want you to hear this, what we're talking about today is not necessarily referring to clinical anxiety. That's not what I'm talking about. This is anxiety that is not of a clinical nature that needs other kinds of help. But what I'm talking about is overwhelming moods, overwhelming feeling that we have in ourselves or even as a nation, as a society. We're living in an anxiety-filled age, and what do we do with it? I've said before in one of my previous sermons, I truly believe that one of the greatest footholds the devil has into our hearts to get to us is pride and anxiety. Pride and anxiety. And they often go hand in hand, actually. And so anxiety is its foothold, yet all of us are struggling with it more than any time ever. We're, as a nation, we're struggling with anxiety. So what do we do with it? We look to money to fix our anxiety, but that doesn't seem to work. What do we do with our anxiety? I believe the answer is found in Psalm 27. And a lot of my stuff I'm sharing with you today I got from two different places. I got from a sermon by Tim Keller and a sermon by R.C. Sproul. And so I feel like those are two decent sources. So you guys can be, most of the stuff he's saying is okay. In this psalm, it's all about fear, worry, anxiety, and how the Bible tells us to deal with it. When we look at this psalm, we're going to see a very real issues, very real problems that should cause fear and worry. That's what I love about this psalm, guys. I love about this psalm. It isn't one of those writings about someone who has never experienced pain, never experienced loss. It's from somebody who's actually experienced pain, experienced loss, who's actually facing very real fears. I typed into Google the other day how to overcome anxiety, because that's where you go for answers, right? You just go to Google how to overcome anxiety. That's exactly what I typed in. And I had a mixture of responses. Some for dealing with overwhelming anxiety in the moment, others dealing with chronic anxiety. I found a few articles that said to visualize a future that is satisfying and focus on that. Ah, peaceful, good future. Others that said the opposite. It said think about the worst case scenario and kind of like charge head on into your problem, challenge yourself. You know, if you're scared of heights, go, go to the highest place and look over heights or something like that. Think about the worst case scenario. Both opposite ways of dealing with the same problem. Well, I believe in Psalm 27, David is actually doing a little bit of both. Here's what I mean. In verse 10, he says, Though my father and mother forsake me. There is no indication in any of the history, when you read First and Second Samuel, First Kings, there's no indication there that David's mother and father had actually forsaken him. Then it also says, Though an entire army was encamped against me. He doesn't say when an entire army was encamped against us. It says, even if, even if they were all encamped against me. What's David doing here? He's actually imagining the worst things that can happen. He's visualizing the worst things that he can happen. Why? Because he wants to have a strategy of life, a strategy of dealing with fears and anxieties that can stand up to anything. He's not saying, oh, everything is fine, and the, if, I, if I just think positive thoughts, he's saying, no, let me get the worst things to come up. Maybe none of these things will happen, so don't think, he's not listening to that advice. He's actually going right up to the worst things that could happen. He's imagining it. The fierce realism of the Bible is seen here. The Bible says you can have a way of dealing with anger and with anxiety and fear that assumes the worst that could happen. Your father and mother going against you, an army arising against you. Imagine it, go ahead, because it doesn't matter because those are not what determines your anxiety. But he also says in verse five, he will hide me in his shelter. And in verse 13, that he will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David is also looking to a bright 
and wonderful future. Once the way you are able to face anxiety is knowing the end. One of the ways you are able to face your anxiety is knowing the end. Knowing the destination that is yours is glory. Guys, you're able to get through the valley because you trust that the shepherd is taking you somewhere better. I can withstand, Gina and I were able to withstand countless hours of filling out document after document where they made us fill out the same thing over and over again. We were able to spend thousands of dollars. We were able to do a crazy long flight with a three-year-old or four-year-old because what we endured, because what we got at the end of all that was a beautiful baby boy, two-year-old boy named Hudson. And it was worth it. We can endure because we looked at the future. We looked at the future reality and said, there's going to be a child in our home. Hudson came home. Your life and all that it has in it is worth it because one day you will be home. David visualizes the worst and also visualizes the future, the future goodness. Guys, can I tell you this? I love this about this psalm because it doesn't just say like an artificial randomness. It actually tells you guys in your life you're going to experience real hardships and it's going to stink. You're going to face cancer. You're going to lose someone you love. There will be an army against you. People will forsake you. Someone like me being a hardcore people pleaser, not, the worst thing for me could be somebody like hating me and thinking I'm the worst thing in the world. There will be people who do that to me. And I can face that because in this psalm, it's not this idea of, no, everything's going to always be fine and you're always going to be happy because if you know Jesus and life is perfect after that, no. Jesus promises one thing, that in this life we will have trouble. He says that, doesn't he? So how do we do? What do we, what do, we do in light of this reality that there's going to be trouble? Because anxiety often is this idea of, well, there's going to be trouble. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Right? We face it and say even the worst of it doesn't compare to the ultimate destiny. Even the worst of it is purposeful because where we're going is so much better that we can endure for the sake of Hudson coming home. We can endure for the sake of the home that we have before us. There's a strategy that David employed. How was David able to shout out, whom shall I fear and my heart will not fear? In verse three, he says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. The war rise against me, yet I'll be confident. Then in verse four, he kind of tells us his secret. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In verse 4, he says, one thing I ask the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. The first key, guys, I want you to get this, the first strategy that David employs to fight anxiety is to look at the future, but ultimately he does this. He, he starts off by dwelling. By dwelling. What does that mean? What does it mean to dwell in the house of the Lord? Now, one of the things you have to think about is David is actually not thinking about a physical spot. He's not literally thinking about dwelling like, oh, hey, let me have a sleeping bag out and have a pillow. and Oh, this looks comfortable. No, he, he actually can't live in the temple. He wasn't asking for that. Only the Le- Levites could actually live in the temple. He wasn't a Levite. And not only that, he couldn't actually live in the Holy of Holies because nobody can go in there. So he wasn't actually talking about, hey, I want to pull up a sleeping bag next to your tabernacle and take a nap. What he's actually asking for is to experience the unbroken presence of God. Because the thing that he's really after is this relationship. It's the face of God. I want to gaze on your beauty. I want to be in your presence. The house of the temple of God was a place where God's face, um, his, where his presence dwelt. Literally, that tra- that's translated for presence. is literally translation of face. What David says is, I want to always be in your presence. 
What does that mean? Pastor Josh and I were at Nantucket Grill the other day, having lunch. Another day I saw this really tall dude walk by. And I looked over at Josh and I said, I think that's Rasheed Wallace. And Josh goes, okay. I'm like, that's Rasheed Wallace. And um, I wasn't 100% sure because I just got a glimpse of him, so I wanted to make sure. So on our way out, I intentionally walked right by him, trying to not be too awkward. I was like, yeah. It was Rasheed Wallace. That's it. That's the end of my story. <laughs> you see, was I in Rasheed Wallace's presence? I guess, but not really. Right? We were in the same place, but I wasn't in his presence. Not face to face, no relationship, no knowledge. That's what this idea is like, what God's calling to is this face to face relationship. Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. It says, when you go out and see the stars, you're in God's presence. Sure you are, but you're not in relationship. If you want to have a friendship with, let's just say, um, Elon Musk, you don't do it putting your head under a Tesla and saying, hey, Elon, Mr. Musk, you there? No, to be in the presence of someone's handiwork, to be in the general presence of someone is not the same thing as having a personal relationship. This is what David is saying. I don't, he doesn't want to just know and be in the presence of God in a general way. He wants to see God face to face. He wants to be an intimate relationship. He wants to say, God, I know you, you know me. He wants to be known and he wants to be loved. That's the whole secret to a fearless life. Why? Why does verse four answer and explain verse three? Why would verse four be the answer? And here it is, I want you to hear this. When David says the one thing that I want is to dwell with you, the one thing that I want, literally what David is saying is my greatest desire, my greatest joy is to be in relationship with you, God. What David is saying is literally saying, God, my greatest identifying factor, my greatest thing that makes me who I am, my greatest want, my greatest joy, my fullness and satisfaction of all that is me is found in you, God in relationship, not just being randomly in your presence or kind of, kind of in your presence, but literally having relationship, being known by you, being loved by you, being in relationship with you. That's what I want. And that answers our greatest fears. You see, your fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are your greatest joys. I'll say that again. Your fears are directly proportional to the vulnerability of the things that are your greatest joys. I, I see this in my life. My fears, when I express them, revolve around my children and my family. I fear the most the things I care the most for. So when I think of fear, when, that's why secondary drowning or all these kind of things raises so much fear amongst all the social media people because that could happen to my kid. My kid, my, my joy, my delight, no, 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 no. And your anxiety comes up because you, what you most desire is your child to be safe and happy who you love so much. And so what I want the most, what I like the most, that I have the most to lose is what I'm most afraid of losing. That causes the most fear and anxiety. Some of you guys are not gonna like this quote. I didn't like this quote either, but I had to stay with me. Tim Keller says, anxiety is always the result of the implosion or the collapse of a false god. I'll say that again. Tim Keller says, anxiety is always the result of the implosion or the collapse of a false god. Tim Keller said it, so if you have an issue with it, take it up with him. You can email him later. But here's the deal, some of you guys may be eaten up with worried anxiety right now, and you think this is an unfair quote, because you're worried about a person. You're worried about how you're gonna feed your family. You're worried about your finances. 
You're worried about a lot of things, and these are good things. That's why this is so hard. The things that we turn into little idols in our lives are always usually good things. They're centered around God. They're wonderful. But that's the reason why they can quickly slip to the center. But before going any further, let me say this. A little anxiety is a good thing. All right, before I go any further, let me caveat this by saying a little anxiety is a very good thing. There is a place where that. Paul says, I have on me daily, on the daily anxiety of all the churches. So a little anxiety shows you're a caring person. It shows that like, you need a little bit of anxiety. Without anxiety, you wouldn't care about people. You wouldn't worry about the safety of your kids. You wouldn't worry about, you'd let your kids go play in the highway and just go like, oh, hey, that sounds like fun. It's 80 miles an hour. Go run, do frogger through it. No, no, you need anxiety. A little anxiety is a good thing. It's like a little stress is a good thing because without stress, you wouldn't get anything done. It's like a little pain is a good thing because if you didn't have pain, you wouldn't know that you had an injury or you keep on walking on your leg or there's, there's bleeding going on. Does that make sense? What we're talking about is this type of anxiety where you take good things and you make it your one thing. Where you're gazing on this idea of that unless I have that thing or unless this thing is not taken away from me, I cannot be happy. Now, let me reiterate once again, I'm not talking to clinical anxiety. I'm not talking about cases that are far beyond my understanding. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the type of anxiety where we have this developed this fear of losing those that have become number one in our hearts. Where we say, if, I, you know, if this is taken away from me, then I can't succeed, I can't go on. If that thing is anything other than God. See, what, God, what David is saying is that if you're my one thing, if you're the one thing that I want, is to gaze upon your beauty, to, to seek you in the temple, then I should be fearless. Because anything but God is kind of like fleeting in this wind. Anything but God can come and go. Anything but God that you put your hope and say, that's the one thing that will bring me satisfaction and joy. And if that one thing is taken away, I cannot survive. Anything but God, then it's an idol. But if it's God, nothing can take that away from you. Now you're fearless. Nothing else can do this. I want you guys to understand that this idea that if it's God is your one thing, then fully the only power, the only thing that is able to tip away from God is nothing because God himself establishes that in your heart. If the one thing is God himself, there is no power on earth, under the earth, or in all the heavens above that can separate you from him. And your confidence is then found not, what was the song say? Your confidence is in his faithfulness. Your confidence is no longer found in circumstances of this life. If certain things happen to fall the right way, if your job gets a promotion, if you have enough money from your family, if this so-and-so doesn't, you don't lose so-and-so in your life, your circumstances are now found, or your confidence is now found in God's faithfulness. And it relies on Him. So if the one thing that you desire is Him. Do you want to live in his presence? Do you want him to be the one thing? How? Let me see this. You have to gaze upon his beauty. You have to seek him in his temple. Now, the reason we see this is true, guys. I feel like it shows this in the verse, rest of Psalm. Psalm verse 8 says, show me your face. Verses 8 through 10 says, basically revolves around this idea of showing me your face, knowing you in a relationship way. Then verses 11 through 14 revolves around, teach me your way. These are the same things. Show me your face is, is, is like gazing on his beauty. Teach me your way is seeking him. So it's gazing and seeking is how you, how you dwell, how you make him the one thing that you crave. So you have to gaze on his beauty. What does it mean to gaze on his beauty? 
I believe it means communion with God. This is the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. This is the difference between knowing He is holy and loving and experiencing His holiness and His love. R.C. Sproul says there's three dimensions of the Christian life that the scriptures are primarily concerned about. The good, the true, and the beautiful. He says there's three things that the scriptures are primarily concerned about. The good, the true, and the beautiful. Yet we often tend to cut off the third one, right? We don't really focus on the beautiful. You know, some Christians kind of reduce their concern for the things of God purely to like the ethical, the good. A discussion of righteousness and goodness and kind of respect to our behavior. Others are focused on the true, concerned about purity of doctrine, their theology, uh, preoccupied with, with kind of the idea of what it means to know what is truth. Rarely, often in our circles, do we find focus on the beautiful, right? But God's calling us to gaze upon his beauty. This might be a terrible illustration, but I'm going to do it anyway. Even when I wrote this illustration, I thought this might not work, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's like being on a dating app. We can quickly see some of the truth about a person, knowledge about that person. So-and-so is this year's old, this many years old, and likes to, to show the office. And we can even see how some of the goodness or the ethics of that person, that so-and-so on this dating app goes to church, spends time with their family, cares about honesty, you can see all this kind of stuff, says all the right things. But none of those is really gazing on the beauty. Gazing on the beauty is to delight in their beauty, in what makes them beautiful. Not a superficial hot or not, but an actual dwelling on, gazing on. It's this idea when Gina and I first started dating, I knew information about her. You know, I knew she was this awesome girl and she was all this cool stuff. Her, our friends kind of like, hey, you should date this girl because she's so much better than you. And I said, cool. And as we got to know each other, I got to see her. I got to see her. She's, she's, I got to see her goodness, her, her life in action. But it wasn't until later on that I realized that I, as, as I was really gazing on her beauty, when it kind of filled me, when I got to experience it, when I got to, to reflect on it, to, 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 to be a part of it, to kind of understand not just one element of a superficial beauty that she has, but to see the depth and the, the breadth of her beauty. Now, I know she's looking at me like, Lawrence, I hate that you're talking about me right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> see, there's a huge difference between just knowing and just seeing the behavioral goodness and then seeing the, the knowledge stuff but to actually meditate and experience the goodness and the beauty. Have you seen the beauty of God? Do you ever meditate on that? Do you ever just stop and think, man, God is good. And he's so beautiful. He's the definition of beauty. And it's only because I know him as beautiful can I see that a flower is beautiful. It was only because I know him is beautiful can I see the Grand Canyon is beautiful. It's only because I know him is beautiful can I know the symphony is beautiful. It's only because he exists and he is beauty can I know that I look at my child and say that is beautiful. Do you ever just sit and gaze upon the beauty of God? Does it fill your thoughts, overwhelm your heart, drive you to tears? May we not be the type of people that only get caught up in the goodness and the knowledge. May we see his beauty. You know what it's like to gaze on the beauty of something. You turn it over in your imagination, the thing you want. You know, right? It's, it's like it's often you do this with your career or the house at the beach that you really want or maybe a per particular person that you had a bad crush on. 
You think about it. You, you fill in your mind with it. You do everything else. You do this with so many things. Do, now do it with God. It's the only way to make you real, make the real one thing the one thing. Gaze on his beauty. Seek him, which leads us to the next word, seeking. He doesn't just say, I want to gaze on your beauty, but I want to seek him. Now the word seek is a very specific Hebrew word. It actually means to go and get counsel. So what it means is when I come to you, I'm trying to find out what your will is. In other words, when you're gazing upon his beauty, when you're falling in love, you also want to know what his will is. You want to obey. You want to find out, you want to seek him in this. And this is so important. These are two parts of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus, isn't it? Gazing on the beauty and seeking God's will. If you only seek God's will to obey, to find out what he teaches and disobey it day and day out, that's what you're doing without gazing on the beauty, what you're doing is just pure legalism. On the other hand, if you just try to gaze on his beauty, just have this great experience of God, but don't want to find out his will and do daily obedience, that is a one-sided relationship. It's all about consuming. Right? Let me explain that a little further. It's like, if, once again, I'm going to use my wife because she's the only person I've ever been married to, so that's all I know how to relate this to. But if I was gazing upon her beauty only and not seeking her heart and seeking serving her, well, then it's just like, ah, I get the benefit of being married, but I don't have to serve her in any way. And it's a consuming. I'm a consumer in that relationship. You know, I'm not, there's not a true intimacy there. That's just like, let me get what I can get out of her. But if I just seek to serve her but not know her, not to gaze upon her beauty, then it's this legalistic contractual obligation. But the beautiful thing about God calling you as you seek him is to be, know, to be known by him, to be in love with, to be loved by him, and to be called a purpose in him. You see, there's a difference when I see her beauty and it moves me and I, I want to get to know her and I want to serve her. Does that make sense, everybody, with me so far? Let me say this really quickly as we go forward, and I'm going to try to wrap this up. David gazed at the beauty of God. When we're told David gazed on the beauty of God at the temple, and he says he gazed on the beauty of God at the temple, what does that mean? It means literally he went to and watched a temple ritual and saw the beauty of God through it. How did that happen? David literally would go to the temple, and their animals were constantly getting slaughtered on the block and sacrificed up to God. And David saw the beauty. He gazed on the beauty of the Lord through the sacrifices. Huh? It's kind of gross. Like he literally went to the temple, saw sacrifices of animals and said, oh, that's beautiful. Not what I would say. Just to be honest with you, it's kind of gross, the idea of sacrificed animals. How could that happen? I want you to hear this. When he saw the animals being slain, he saw the beauty of God's justice and holiness. He said, here's a God who believes so much in justice, he requires sin to be paid for. He's a God who's so good, so holy, that he just cannot overlook sin. He's a just God, and he will not overlook sin. He's a God who deals with evil, deals with the struggles, deals with the evil in this world. What a holy God, what a just God. But on the other hand, when he looked at the sacrifices, he also saw a merciful God. A God who wants to deal with our sins so we can still come close to him. A God who wants to forgive our sins. Here's a God who wants to find a way for us to come to him. Do you see that? David was able to say, I see your beauty in the temple. In the place where animals are being slaughtered, I see your justice and I see your mercy. And if David was able to gaze at the beauty of God through the tabernacle and temple worship, how much more of the beauty of God will we see if we gaze at God through the face of Jesus? 
You see, when we look at God today, we don't have to look at him through the bull being slaughtered on the block. We see the face of a human being, the most loving human being ever, who died for us, suffocating on the cross, blood and sweat flowing down his face, looking at us and saying, you don't know what you're doing, but I've been forsaken for you. Let me tell you, if David saw so much beauty in the God in the temple, so much beauty that, that God made, let him be able to turn and look at the armies, look at people forsaking him and say, I am confident, I am secure, I have all that I need to face whatever circumstances in the world. How much more than when we look at the face of Jesus do we see the beauty that can absolutely conquer anxiety? That's what we look at. We gaze on him, we look at him, and look at what he's doing, look at him dying for you. We're able to, how much more of the beauty of God can we see? How much more are we going to be able to look at God and say, you are my one thing. I see your beauty. Guys, for those of us on this side of eternity, those of us on this side of what Jesus did, what we can do is instead of seeing it at the temple, we see in the flesh of Jesus a God who said, I love you so much, a God of, of justice who cares, I care about justice so much that I sent my son to die upon the cross for you. That mercy is now yours. Justice is still there. Justice is real, but mercy now exists and it's yours and you can be in relationship with me and the just God, the holy God, who's also a merciful, loving God, is now fully in control of you. So that the one thing that you need, the one thing that you were made for is to be in relationship, to be known and to be loved by him, to be known and to be loved, to be called according to purpose, that desire that you have, this human condition that you have, is now answered in God. And because it is, what have you to fear? Nothing could ever take that away from you. Nothing compares to that. And so when you know that your identity, when you know that you're secure, when you know that the best thing can never be taken away and it's yours forever, then you can start looking at the rest of the troubles of this earth and put it in the correct perspective. Now I'm not saying, guys, that this is an immediate pill to stop your anxiety. I am not saying that you just, oh, look upon the beauty of God and all of a sudden you're like, oh, anxious gone. No. I am saying this, that you can develop a whole orientation toward God. And the Bible is giving you an antidote to anxiety, but it's not a patch, it's not a band-aid, it's regeneration. It's a new heart, a new way of life, a new way of doing something. So I admit that this, takes a long time to develop. It's not a quick fix. This is not something that says, oh, I look at the beauty one time and all of a sudden I'm like, ooh, I am no longer anxious. But I am saying is that when your heart starts becoming regenerated, when you turn your whole orientation to looking and making your one thing being God, and you know fully and confident that you are His and He is yours, it starts shaping your identity, it shapes your, your, your confidence, and then you can start saying, God, even if you took everything away from me, even if you took my family away from me. And even the idea of me saying that makes me want to cry. But God, even if you took my child away from me, my wife away from me, even if you did that, God, I can still trust and know that you are good and I will see your goodness in the land of the living because nothing can take you away from me. And my destiny ultimately, even if everything is gone, even if I lose all security, all wealth, all family, all friends, I have you, and you are more than enough. And it's going to stink, and it's going to struggle, and I don't want that to happen, God, but if it did, 
I know you're working something out, and one day, one day, I'll be reunited. I'll be home. Guys, this is not a miracle. It is a miracle, but this is not like a quick fix to your anxiety. Is what I'm not selling here. I'm not saying an answer to your clinical anxiety. I'm saying this is a reorientation, a regeneration of our heart to say, God, you are all that I need. My confidence is found in you. There was an English missionary named Alan Gardner. In 1851, he was on his way to South America to start a new mission, and he was shipwrecked on a very remote island. He and his companions tried their very best to stay alive until somebody came to find them, but nobody did. Finally, he died far away from everybody, far away from his loved ones, far away from home, dying of thirst, dying of hunger. When they finally discovered his body, they found, they found right next to his body his quiet time notebook, his journal. They opened it up, and they saw on the very last page, he wrote Psalm 3410. This is what it says. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Right underneath it, the last words he penned were, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. There's a famous missionary named Dr. Helen Rosevere. And she went to Africa and she started clinics and shared the gospel. While she was there, she suffered a brutal assault twice after she was kidnapped and assaulted. And I remember, I read an interview, I saw an interview with her on, on, like on, on the internet, and one of the things that struck me about what she said was she said, the worst fear a woman often fears is that. The worst fear. But she said, but I, who know Jesus, and know that my body is just temporary, I'm his forever, and I have a new body coming. What is there to fear? And I remember her, because it was on two separate occasions, I could imagine her fear from the first occasion, but yet she willingly went back for a second occasion. And knowing and hearing somebody who knows, knows and gazes upon the beauty, who says the one thing is so powerful that even the worst fear that I can imagine, she says, the one thing I want is to gaze upon the beauty. And the one thing that I need, the only thing that I need, that can endure any fear, that can withstand any circumstance, is the love of God. Our confidence, guys, in this world is not built on some artificial kind of visualizing a fake future kind of situation. Our, our confidence in this world isn't built on um, everything is going to be great and nothing bad is going to happen to us. Our confidence isn't built on, oh, because we gave enough sacrifices in our ties that we get more, more than enough money that we need. Our confidence is if we're good enough, nothing but good things will happen to us. Our confidence is built that no matter what happens to us, we are not alone, our shepherd is with us, and he is all that we need. Do you get that? I wish I could say that I don't feel anxiety. I wish we could all proclaim that. I had uh, somebody, she's not here right now, she would have been so glad to know that she mentioned something she said. She said to me, she said, Lawrence, you know, right now it's true that if I'll only die when Jesus says it's my time to die or when I'm done doing the work that Jesus said to work, so I can just go right now and I-40 when it's the busiest time and play Frogger and I'll only die if Jesus says it's my time to die, so I can just go do that, right? And I looked at her, I just wanted to smack her across the head and be like, what? But um, 
I know, right? I, seriously, I was like, don't put God to the test. And don't, I had a whole bunch of verses. Don't worry about it. But what I want you to hear is this. Not that wrong way of looking at this, confidence. But a confidence that looks something like this. That when the one thing that you were made for, the one thing your heart and souls desire more than anything, is that God of the universe created you for that beautiful love relationship of being known and being loved and having significance eternally. If that's yours, it can never be taken away. Guys, can I tell you that if you understand that, then nothing else compares to it. There's, there's an ability to say, God, with like David here, whom shall I fear? Whom shall I be afraid? Because I have all that I need. I love you guys so much. And I know there's so many of us in this place who are dealing with anxiety. Sometimes it feels debilitating. Sometimes it feels overwhelming. Sometimes it leads you to a place opposite of where you need to go. Sometimes it leads you to a place because of your anxiety, you don't want to go to God. You want to keep on working harder, right? Because of your anxiety, you're like, man, I got anxiety over money. I got anxiety over this. So you're just like, well, all I know, all I know to do, all I can do is I'll, I'll make more money. I'll make more money. Or I'll put more rules over my children. Or I'll put more safeguards in place, right? And your anxiety does all this and builds up, builds up. Guys, can I tell you, there's some of you in this place who just, can I just tell you, you just need to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Ask for one thing, and I know that's not easy. So here's what I want us to do. I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come on up. As they're making their way up, I want to invite those of you during this last set of worship. If you're struggling with anxiety, know, number one, know that you're not alone. You are not alone. Let me say that one more time. You are not alone. But two, I want you to know that if you're struggling with it, you're in a safe place here. And we want to say, hey, we want to pray for you. Not that all of a sudden you took the magic pill and, whoo, you're better. But we want to help you know that your heart is being regenerated. Your orientation is changing to say the one thing is all that you need. And we want to point you to the God that is all that you need. So what we want to do is during this last set of worship, if that's you, there'll be people wearing yellow name uh, lanyards. They'll be around different places like the front, to the side, to the back. They want to pray with you. They would love to pray with you. And I would love, I would just encourage you to just go receive prayer. I want you to know this. Every Sunday, guys, during the last set of worship, there are people with a yellow lanyard on who just want to pray with you, who want to share with you, who want to carry that burden that you're carrying, remind you in this way that you're not carrying it alone. And they want to pray with you. So we go find those people and we pray with them. And the rest of us, will we set our orientation to God? When we say, God, one thing I ask, and this is all I seek, that I may gaze upon your beauty, that I may dwell, may we dwell with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, God, that you show us how to gaze upon your beauty. God, you show us how to, to meditate and to, to think about and to, to experience your goodness. God, in that process, we, may, we, we ask you to help us to make the one thing, the real one thing that we need. God, help us to combat anxiety 
God, of our confidence that we can find in you. So your faithfulness, God, is our confidence. Please comfort those who are struggling. Let them know they're not struggling alone. Help reorient their hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen.